0: Hi uh, everyone, you are listening to GATHER. You're
1: listening to GATHER.
2: Together.
3: GATHER. This is Amy Sulemanis and this is GATHER with Minerva's Books and Ideas, where we'll explore the lives of books and the ideas they ignite and illuminate. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of GATHER. I'm Amy, your humble GATHERer, and I'm coming at you from beautiful Wadawurrung country in Ballarat, Australia. This episode is in two parts and will take you through the wonderful world of booksellers and storytellers. If you were to walk into the NAM or Melbourne Museum, you might go past the dinosaurs, the forest and marine life, the children's museum, the First Peoples Bunjalaka Cultural Centre, past Farlap, an 80 year old champion racehorse that remains their most popular exhibit, and then the marvellous Melbourne display past stories of gold, trams, technology and city life, you would find yourself beneath a rainbow and maybe hearing the sounds of this symphonium. You see a mechanical box inviting you to read, a series of small tokens promoting the federation of the world, stating that all men are brothers and that the happiness of mankind and the real salvation of the world must come about through every person in existence being taught to read and induced to think. Man and mankind standing in for us all, as was the way. You might also see some copies of a rainbow-covered book called Cole's Funny Picture Book, and in it the words to the Book Arcade song and the mark of a master marketer.
1: The book you wish, the book you want, is almost sure to be found somewhere in the book arcade if
3: you will call and see. In part one of this episode, we'll explore the wonderful world of bookseller and storyteller E.W. Cole, a man both ahead of his times and of it, and his amazing book arcade, opened on Melbourne Cup Day in 1883. But we'll also explore the books and creative works inspired by the arcade, its publications and its message of equality, literacy and fun. You'll hear the voices of Lisa Lang, author of E.W. Cole, Chasing the Rainbow, and the novel Utopian Man, both published about 10 years ago. At that
2: time, there wasn't a lot around on Cole, so now there is the um, display at the museum and there's also a display at the State Library. Um, Neither of those were around when I very first started researching Cole's story. So I was really quite surprised that there was so... Little recognition of his story. People knew the funny picture books, but they didn't know much about the man behind it, and the book arcade was very much forgotten.
3: Richard Brnoiski, author of Under the Rainbow, The Life and Times of E.W. Cole, published this year.
0: He fired the imagination and the sense of humour of of many Victorians.
3: And Hilary Bell and Philip Johnston, creators of the yet-to-be-staged musical Do Good and You Will Be Happy based on the funny picture book.
4: I really, really loved it and it was just kind of wild. Uh, The pictures were astounding in their kind of macabre, sentimental, beautiful, politically incorrect qualities these days.
3: These books will be our seeds from which the stories unfold. So while there's now a museum display and multiple books and projects, I think part of the mythical magic comes from it only existing in these traces. As Mike Brady of Arcade Publishing puts it, they put out the first non-fiction book with Lisa Lang in 2009. As a youngster in Tasmania, I was convinced that this was the grandest shop in the world and that one day I would visit it. But as he notes, unfortunately it closed not long after Cole's death in 1918 and only remains in stories and a section of glass ceiling over Howie Place off Little Collins Street in the Melbourne CBD. What are all the different ways this story can be told? And what does coal mean to us today?
2: It always struck me that it was kind of a perfect story to be told in lots of different ways. And it it actually really surprised me that it wasn't already out there because I know lots of stories in history don't get told and often it's the stories of women or Aboriginal people or other minority groups. But Edward Cole was a white male in kind of an establishment figure, although fairly anti-authoritarian. So in some ways it's more surprising that his story uh, wasn't sort of amongst the official history of, of Melbourne.
3: We'll hear a bit more from Lisa later about her interesting experience of writing both fiction and non-fiction about Cole. But who was he before the book Arcade? Richard's book from this year was a response to the Cole Foundation doing a call-out for someone to write the definitive biography of Edward. Whether or not this is possible is up for question, but he adds some more context to Cole's background. Cole was born in Kent, England, before travelling to Australia via South Africa and travels on the Murray River, then the Victorian goldfields via Melbourne. Richard's book covers all this, through to mixing with the literary folk of Castlemaine, to losing his mining pal to dysentery, and shifting his operations to a lemonade stall and the beginnings of his entrepreneurial flair.
0: One could not say definitively this is what Cole was, how he was raised, because you've got the skeleton, the bare bones of the man when he was born, where he lived, yes, but what did he do? What was he thinking? How did he get his education? And you have to look at several alternatives and say to the reader, these are the possibilities you have to make in your own mind. It's a bit of a mystery. Even more so was his year in South Africa before he went to Australia when he was about 19 years old. Uh, he could have been in the military, although I think that's basically discounted. But he was involved. He, he could have worked for farmers, and I think that's more likely. He was involved to some extent in the frontier wars against the COSA and the Koi. And I think probably that instilled in him a distaste, a, repug, a repugnance for violence. Towards the end of his time, in about 1850-51, he realised the news came through of the gold rush in Victoria, in Australia, and he decided he should go there. And he got on a ship and he, he went. And then, when he came there, of course, there's a lot of speculation about it, his life. But but what he did in the gold fields was pretty pretty clear cut. And they finally found their way to Castle Maine. And when they got there, they they confronted a, a vast open plain of human activity, like on a monumental scale with uh, rifles going off and people singing.
3: While Cole wasn't successful with gold mining, he joined other canny people by providing needed services. He sold lemonade to the miners before heading back to Melbourne and the opportunities of the population growth and culture there.
0: I think Australians were among... We, we in the late 19th century, we had the highest standard of living in the world. And it was it, in Victoria, it was accelerated by the finding of gold. Victoria was very, very wealthy, and Cole sort of became part of that, and I think he, he realised that people needed, the, there was a great cry and need for literature, and he, he came across it really fortuitously because he was selling pies from a, a stall he had in the Old Eastern Market, long since gone, of course, on the Con Exhibition and uh, Burke Street. And uh, he he went. He was selling his pies door-to-door in the inner suburbs in Collingwood and Fitzroy and East mm-hmm. Melbourne. And a, a woman said to him, look, I'll, I'll buy your pies because I, I think they're very good, but I've got a whole uh, bookshelf here of books. Why don't you buy them and try and sell them instead? So he, he took them and he set up a book-selling stall in the Eastern Market, and that set him on his progress to towards developing what he <laughs> arguably says, boastfully but probably truthfully, one of the largest book arcades in the world.
3: I love the image that you uh, recall of someone going past his stall on horseback and Cole throwing his books up to him.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, look, it was a wild time. I mean, the, the eastern market was full of all sorts of jousters and lounges and, and hooray henries and people uh, testing their skills on electric electric machines. Uh, a woman who allowed men to kiss her for Tuppence or Thruppence and one bloke was so energised by the electric shock treatment he had before he actually broke a jaw.
3: So can you describe the atmosphere of the bookshop? What would it have been like going in there, the sounds and sights in Coles Book Arcade?
0: There were two bookstores before it, one further up Swanson Street, but the main was open on Melbourne Cup Day in 1883. And there he set the tone by turning it into a bit of a carnival. When you approached this enormous store, he'd already knocked out the floors between the, the ceiling and the floor. And was a, it was like a, a modern ship, the interior of a modern tourist liner. You, you walk out of your cabin along a chalester, a, a gallery, and downstairs you've got this enormous space where, where everything is sold. And he had clear glass ceilings so that the sunlight would come in and flood the arcade. He had brass pillars outside. He had mechanical monkeys advertising what was for sale inside, mixed up with moral arguments about how uh, if you work hard, it's it's virtuous and how you have to work to earn a good day's pay and that makes you, keeps you honest and don't drink and don't smoke, all that stuff. And inside, one of the things he developed, I think, and probably was a unique way of marketing, the shelves were open for people to browse. They they, they didn't have to meet a stiff-collared clerk who would would, uh, get the books out for them. They could look for themselves. Not only that, but they could take the books out, sit down in a fern garden in a a quiet place within the arcade and read to the heart's content without having to buy. He had a sort of a counterintuitive feeling about this. If we don't force them to buy, they're going to buy more, and so they did. He extended the arcade with a very high-quality tea salon uh, with bric-a-brac stores which which had very wonderful china and and ornaments that he'd bring back from abroad, understanding at the time that the Melbourne standard of living, this is before the Great Depression of the 1890s, the Melbourne standard of living was improving and women were working more. And because the women were the homemakers, they were the ones who would come in and buy these attractive ornaments that he had on the third floor of his store so that the sunlight would catch them and make them gleam and glisten and make them more attractive to the buyers. And he had a monkey house, as you know, uh, where where kids were fascinated coming to the monkey houses with with their, their nanny or their mothers, who were appalled at watching these children with grave concentration watch monkeys copulate. What, what, oh, mummy, what's he doing to her? So they they actually uh, started a moral campaign <laughs> against cold monkeys and the Melbourne City Council eventually banned them. But for the time, he had them. He had an aviary. He had birds in it. He had uh, one bird that swore mightily at people, but uh, they didn't mind that. That was all part of the, the carnival atmosphere in, in the school. He had an orchestra. He wasn't particularly... Uh, Uh, refined in his taste of music, so he had light classics and hymns intermixed with hymns, and and his his orchestra with a pianist played this music for the people. It was all very fascinating. People went there not just to buy books but to rest. Uh, The Melbourne City Council had banned people resting on, on park benches and benches along the city streets, and that actually put spikes on the the sills of shops and windows so that people couldn't sit down. But Cole very cannily, had benches in in a fern garden. He imported the ferns from the Dandenongs and set them up so people could come in and read. It was altogether very successful.
3: What a feast for creativity and imagination, both then and now. Here's Lisa Lang reading from her novel Utopian Man.
2: Edward stands on Little Collins waiting for the delivery cart. It is a dirty street, backing onto factories, and Edward hears the clank and thud of nearby industry. A breeze blows through, acrid and chemical, whipping up rubbish. It is the kind of street so devoid of life, even the rats ignore it. As he reaches for his fob watch, the sound of hooves break into his awareness. The horses come into view, their heads lowered. Behind them, at more than twice their height, are the tree ferns, wavering, fragile, intensely green, gliding past the factories, a dream of the forest in the city's heart. Edward is spellbound, as as though some other agency has planned all this. He watches the horses, stout and spotted and rough of coat, but with the dignity of thoroughbreds. He watches the ferns, a trembling mirage, barely credible in the grey landscape. Apart from the drivers, he is alone on the street, the whole event coloured by the rare singular quality of his boyhood adventures. You Mr Cole, calls one of the drivers. Skinny and freckled, he looks no older than 14. Beside him, the second driver appears a little meatier. Still, Edward wonders how they will manage to shift their large and awkward cargo. They jump from the cart and Edward points them to the walkway where the ferns are to be placed. The boys move swiftly. They carry the plants between them, grunting, cursing, but careful not to damage the tender fronds. When they are finished, Edward tips them generously, thinking all the while of his own two boys. Thanks, Mister, Have yourself a champion day, calls the freckled one, climbing up into the cart. Edward basks in this rough blessing. He will have a champion day. So I'd actually started researching and writing the novel first and uh, I was friends with um, Dale and Mike from Arcade Publishing and I was talking to them about Edward Cole's story and they kept saying oh this would make a great little non-fiction book you know you sure you wouldn't be interested in writing some non-fiction so I actually put I think the first draft of the novel aside and and wrote the nonfiction, and it was such a different process. Um, The research side of it was similar, but I guess what I was trying to do with the novel was really capture the human side, the sort of quieter moments, as well as the colour and excitement of 1880s Melbourne, and you have such great flexibility in fiction to kind of make things big and colourful, make things small, Intimate and quiet, and you can kind of imagine the textures and the, the smells and the colours in a way that, if you don't have the research material, you can't make up those moments. And so, for me, it sort of clarified what I was wanting to do with the fiction. Um, the story itself is so interesting, it, it doesn't need em- embellishment or, or colour, but I guess I wanted to really bring that time in Melbourne into kind of full-colour life and at the same time show Cole as being human, flawed, with good and bad qualities and not sort of just turn him into this sort of exceptional historical figure that nobody could relate to as a human being.
3: I was interested to hear how Lisa had used the archives in her work.
2: The State Library has got um, some couple of boxes in the manuscripts collection that belonged to Edward Cole and that's actually got some really interesting bits and pieces in there. little sort of diaries and notebooks that he kept letters that he wrote to Eliza and the children when he was overseas um, I found things like a ticket stub to the Turkish baths in the Royal Arcade yeah little bits of ephemera And yeah, just the smallest things could be really evocative. So in a letter to Eliza, there would be a little section put aside for the children with a few little diagrams that he'd drawn. Um, And you could just feel, just through those little gestures, a real sort of tenderness and involvement towards his children that struck me as a bit unusual for a, a patriarch in the Victorian era. And so little things like that were sort of little clues or insights into... Um, the type of person that he might have been and they help you sort of colour certain scenes in the novel where he's interacting with the children and the importance of the children in his lives and yeah I guess you just pick up those little bits from the archive and sort of transform them into a a human personality.
3: Beautiful yeah so you're sitting in the library holding (laughs) things that he'd actually um, created.
2: Yeah yeah absolutely and it It does really sort of spark the imagination. Um, There is something special about seeing something in someone's own handwriting and, you know, holding even business documents that he'd
4: written. You could
2: just get a sense of the the person sort of just behind those documents Um, and I guess it's that little space that allows the writer's imagination to to create something and build something in that gap, which you can't always do um, with nonfiction. I guess with the fiction, I felt I didn't mind making things up, but I wanted to remain true to that feeling that those archival materials was giving me. Um, So if I was getting a certain impression, I would make things up if it helped to recreate that impression rather than just invent things purely out of thin air.
3: How would you describe um, yeah, that spirit of <laughs> what you found of him coming through as you were researching?
2: Oh, it's a good question. He, he's pretty unusual in some ways in that he was such a good businessman, really entrepreneurial, really understood what was popular and what was going to strike a chord with a large group of people. And at the same time, he didn't care about personal popularity or being seen to be going against the grain or ruffling a few feathers and politically he was happy to sort of stand up against things that were popular at the time like the white Australia policy and argue against them. And so he's an interesting mix of um, someone who knows what the public wants but won't necessarily always give it to them if it, if it clashes with his principles or ideals. And so, yeah, I found that aspect interesting. It didn't stop him making money. He made um, quite a lot of money in, in his day. Um, but at the same time, he took a few positions that were unpopular and that could have potentially cost him business.
3: So yeah, the context that the Book Arcade was operating in that era of Australian life and Melbourne culture, um, what was that like being immersed in that world?
2: It was really fun. I guess prior to really doing that research, I'd thought of history as being a little bit conservative and, you know, the present and the future was all about sort of progress and Um, The past was a bit dusty and sepia coloured, and when I started doing the research, I realised that that conception is quite inaccurate. And history goes through cycles, and you know, the 1880s was actually a time of um, incredible excitement, change, rapid change in Melbourne, extreme colour and movement, and new ideas and booming population and lots of immigration and just you know quite a sort of golden period literally in Melbourne's life Um, and then you know things really changed after the 1890s depression and then there was the start of federation and you know things changed again so um, I guess I learnt to look at history a little bit more differently and to realise that people in those times experienced what we think of history as richly and intensely as we experience our lives, Um, that everything was fresh and new for them at the time that they experienced everything and and this sort of dusty sort of embalmed notion of history, I guess wanting to kind of get beyond that to the sort of richly imagined human understanding of history.
3: You've talked about it a bit and I guess touch on it there. What do you think yeah literature or fiction can do yeah in bringing these things to life yeah well I think when we do write about
2: history we're always doing it through the lens of the present so it's always just another way to examine what's going on now but at the same time we can draw parallels and we can sort of re-examine the past in light of what we know now what fiction can do is give us a bit more of a personal involvement a bit more something more like a personal exchange with history um, something that kind of really resonates and makes a sort of deep impression on people um, rather than reading a series of facts or events or you know things that took place
3: One of the things that jumped out for these storytellers was Cole's inventive and unorthodox advertising that also extended to finding a wife.
2: Look, I've always loved Edward advertising for a wife in the newspaper. I think that one's pretty hard to beat. You couldn't make it up. It's just one of those examples where he really doesn't care what anybody thinks of him. It draws so much attention to him and his personal life to be advertising for a wife on the front page of the paper um, at a time, you know, long before the classifieds, long before Tinder, long before any of of these modern ways we have of trying to meet a partner. And it's just that mix of his real pragmatism and practicality and sort of knowing what he wants and his sort of disregard for convention.
0: Cole was not a chauvinist in in the sense of the day. He realised... Of consequence, and but yet there was that conditioning that they're not as good as men, and he'd be, he'd be thrown out of court now if he confronted them. and he would he'd feel very hurt about that because he was actually a man who who had equanimity and who had a, a sense of justice about people, and I think in his heart of hearts he said no, women are the same as men, but when he advertised for a wife, she had to be moderately well-educated. She had to be cleanly in her habit. She had to be a good cook. All the stereotypes of women being barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen were there at that time. Uh, he, in fact, he, he, did, uh, he did marry a, a, a Taswegian, and she proved to be very strong-minded and had wonderful, strong character. Uh, she was so tough on his stuff. And he was hiring at, when he, at the height of his arcade. He was hiring over 100 employees at a time. When he went on buying trips to England, his wife took over and she sacked a few people who, Cole, in a soft-hearted way, couldn't bear to fire, but she did. When, When he came back, all of them breathed a sigh of relief that the master was back.
3: Cole was a fascinating character who wove his own story. And we now hear about some of the qualities that sat behind the inspiration to turn his Cole's funny picture book into a musical and another kind of storytelling.
4: You know, I think he was—he was certainly a utopian, and he had an incredible faith in humankind. Um, the fact that he—you know—yes, of course, he was a sort of Victorian gentleman who was a product of his times, but he had an incredible sense of progress and um, of what what human beings were capable of. So, for example, he was one of the few vocal opponents of the white Australia policy in the 19th century where even, you know, the Labor Party back then was very uh, pro-white Australia policy because it was a threat to what they saw as Australian workers' jobs. Um, Cole took a stand. He put ads in the paper. He made it a very sort of central part of um, what his bookshop was promulgating so he went to Japan and interviewed Japanese on their worldviews and brought them back to show white Australians how civilized they were so that was kind of not only extraordinary to be able to see above what was you know the sea that you were swimming in back then but also to be brave enough to come out and say it. Um, He had very kind of progressive views on uh, gender and on education and on the way children should be brought up um he was certainly a believer in hard work and uh but he had a huge amount of tenderness and compassion um he loved animals that th- these are some of the things that i think really struck me
5: and while we uh, did not try to do a biopic into the musical we did bring many of the elements of cole's life but Rather than doing them in a narrative, biographical way, they're just elements of the fantasia on Cole. So the bookshop, um, including some of the aspects of it that were so fantastical.
4: Hello, my name's Hilary Bell and I am primarily a playwright, but I also write for the screen and I do a lot of uh, work with music theatre so I write opera libretti and I write book and lyrics for musicals and in the last five or ten years I've also started working on picture books. I work with an illustrator called Antonia Pizzonti and Matthew Martin, another illustrator and um, we have a number of books out including one called Alphabetical Sydney.
5: And I'm Philip Johnston, Um, I'm a composer and musician I'm a jazz musician, I play the saxophone, and I also write music for films and silent films, and in the case we're talking about uh, here, theatre.
4: So I'm a child of the 70s, and that was when this book called Funny Picture Book had a sort of a revival. It had actually never gone out of print since it first appeared in 1879, but by the 80s it was kind of, you know, no longer appearing on bookshelves. But my parents introduced it to me when I was very small and it was sort of a fixture. Um, I read it all the time. I skipped over the boring, you know, the oneness of man and those sorts of uh, philosophical tracts back then and I just went to the whipping machine and um, (laughs) the man turning into a screw and cats dressed up in pinafores. But um, I was with Philip, so we're a married couple, and um, we met in New York, got married over there, lived there for a long time, and we were back in Australia in a secondhand bookshop one visit, and I found the book on the shelf, I think, and showed it to Philip and told him about my connection with it, and he said, wow, this would make an amazing musical. And so that would have been probably... More than 10 years ago.
5: Closer to 20 years
4: Probably ago. 20. So, yes, we started kind of going, how do you turn a book with no story and no main characters into a musical? And that was the beginning of a very long dramaturgical experiment that's gone in many, many different directions. Musically, I'll let Philip talk about that, but we were very kind of keen to find a way that um, we were uh, paying tribute to the music of, of the, the style of the book, so kind of music hall was what we were interested in, and then um, Philip's own inimitable jazz style.
5: Well, I think one important thing to mention is that the show that we worked on was always meant to be a biography of the book, more than a biography of Cole. So, a lot of the artistic directions that we went in were aimed at evoking the book. So, that's one of the reasons why we um, look to English music hall and vaudeville. And the music isn't really pastiche per se. Some of it verges on pastiche, I would say. But it's modern music which references older musical styles but it's not a faithful naturalistic interpretation of the music of that time it's more of a fantasia on um, older styles of music which we both happen to love anyway and kind of penetrates a lot of what we do
4: you creatures wherever you are put down your soup spoons put out your cigar from comic and clipping the quip and the pun come out of the shadows there's work to be done
1: you all seem bewildered you're asking what for we're making a
4: book to prevent a world Different theater companies have have been involved in it and every time we've kind of struggled with how do you tell how, how do you impose a story on something that doesn't essentially doesn't have a story? And as Philip said, we weren't really interested in doing a biopic of E. W. Cole, although he does he did have an extraordinary life. Um, what we were really excited about was the book itself and the kind of um, you go through all these different lands in the book. So Babyland, Santa Claus Land, Smoking Land. It's this kind of amazing picaresque journey really and I think we've kind of come full circle now we we've tried imposing all these sort of rules of dramaturgy onto the material but ultimately what where we're at with it right now is letting it be a kind of a variety concert so um rather than trying to force a square peg into a round hole just celebrating the messiness and the kind of unique, loopy worldview that was E.W. Coles and letting that kind of shine rather than trying to trim the edges and making it into a well-made musical.
1: <laughs>
4: we had wild ambitions. We actually had in the stage directions the Coles Funny Picture Book kind of being constructed on stage and we were very inspired by, um, oh, the kind of... Parlor games and board games and artwork of the time. So, we, you know, pop up books and musical postcards and um, even cigar boxes that turned into little stages. So, we had a very lavish vision to begin an, with.
5: An English theater company that did a show called Shock Added Peter that was quite. It was kind of a touchstone for us in our vision of how it could look. It was very homemade and very uh, sort of fantastically dark. Yeah. So we were we imagined in our wildest dreams constructing the spanking machine, the whipping machine, rather, and uh, some of the fantastic uh, machines from the book, and also including the element, one of the most widely distributed through it aspects is these um, very Victorian-looking anthropomorphized animals, a stork and uh, the cats pig. and dogs yes. wearing evening clothes and uh, frogs and toads uh, as characters. And that was also a big part of the show. Behavior,
1: a boost. It must be the funniest ever produced. What will you call it? What's it about? Well, if you want people to read and to think You must use the very best paper and ink The spine must be sturdy, the type not too big and see you
0: devote a whole page to the dog who's by far the most dignified bird. Give him a whole chapter, give him the last thing on your mind should be trotters and bakes. What the children want is a doggy who
5: stop your making a terrible din.
4: Next one who quarrels We wanted
5: I'm- to refer to a lot of uh, older styles of music, but twisting them a little bit the same way that we were in the story
4: spiky uh rubbing up against the the sort of almost sentimental mawkishness of that kind of uh, victorian view of children or mothers or babies or animals and then uh the kind of glee that you can see in pages like the whipping machine or the sort of stuff philip was just describing with straw peter that there was something quite sort of uncomfortable in in the marriage of those two
3: perspectives. What do you think music and song and theatre would have brought to telling the Cole story?
5: Another of the projects I worked on recently was a collaboration with Art Spiegelman, the graphic artist, and we presented a piece called Wordless at the uh, Sydney Opera House, which also brought graphic images and books from the last 100 to 150 years to life. And it just, you know, provided insight to people who uh, had never heard of these things um, to that work and made a new thing out of it. And we performed live music with these projections of images. We could potentially do the same thing with Cole's funny picture book and just uh, people love it. They get great pleasure Mm. out of it.
4: I would also say, you know, there's something about the book that's just kind of begging to be made into something three-dimensional. Um, it's mostly in black and white if you look at the book itself and it's just bursting at the seams to be um, filled with personality, filled with colour, to, to pop off the page with the aid of music and magic and um, visual sleight of hand. So I think it just kind of helps pop the whole thing into a whole other dimension. That's what's really exciting to me about it. And to um, appeal to an audience on an emotional level in a way that, you know, it, it certainly does to some degree, but to be able to take one uh, one character or one of the lands in the book or uh, one little piece of verse and dig deeper with that and turn it into a, a, yes, a whole package a living, breathing musical package.
1: Who will wash us?
4: kids love is stuff that is a bit dark. That's what I loved about the book as a child myself. So um, with this show, though, I think it's really, it, it's got some quite sort of dark and profound themes. So whatever the kids get out of it may not be the same as what the adults get out of it.
3: Bell and Johnston's work really brings out the complexity of Cole's world. That wasn't all rainbows and lollipops. And through these different ways of exploring the story, there's a richness of character and spirit that resonates today. Who was Edward really, and what does it mean for us? The reality is he was many things, both shy and bold, of his time and ahead of it, magical and human. He had hope and the will to build a better world, a more equal, more loving, more weird and funny world. And we can all learn something from that
0: he was a, a futurist he was fond of and, and and used embraced modern technology electric light and the telephone he had an electric a, a pneumatic lift one of the first elevators in in melbourne uh, to take people up to the third floor and he had a, an energetic sense of the absurd he was good at self promotion he encouraged reading literature and melbourne literacy and that's, that's a good thing about this book, which the foundation, the Cole Foundation, is going to give every high school in Victoria, about 2,000 of them, a copy, a free copy of, of my book. And I hope that that stimulates kids to think about their past. If we don't know our history, we're bound to repeat it.
3: As part of Richard's book Under the Rainbow coming out this year, there was also going to be a memorial created at the remaining bit of the arcade in Melbourne City, but the pandemic had other plans. Look out for it next year. Maybe we can draw chalk rainbows on the ground together. For now, thanks so much for listening, and in the words of Lisa Lang's Frickly Delivery Boy, have yourselves a champion day. And after the credits, enjoy our recording of the Coles Book Arcade song in its entirety. La, la 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 Gather with Minerva's books and ideas is produced by me, Amy Silmanus, with sound engineering and general audio mastery by the amazing Dave Byrne. And this first episode is proudly supported by the Australian Government's Regional Arts Fund, provided through Regional Arts Australia and administered in Victoria by Regional Arts Victoria. Thank you. Produced on Woderrung Country in Ballarat, Australia. We pay our deep respects to elders past, present and emerging as we live and work on this ancient and inspiring land. Music by Ellen Sorensen has been specially created for the show and the Coles Book Arcade song is sung by Sharon Turley. Songs from the musical Do Good and You Will Be Happy are courtesy of Hilary Bell and Philip Johnston and the Coles Arcade Symphonium is with thanks to the Melbourne Museum. Logo and episode design is by Tiffany Titchell. Books we've discussed are Under the Rainbow, The Life and Times of E.W. Cole by Richard Brunowski, published through Melbourne University Press. Utopian Man by Lisa Lang, published through Allen & Unwin. E.W. Cole, Chasing the Rainbow by Lisa Lang from Arcade Publishing. And you can also get a copy of the 2013 Cole's Funny Picture Book, A Best Of, that Mike Brady worked on with Hardy Grant Publishing which is described as a curated collection from the infamous and much-loved Cole's Funny Picture Book, first published in 1879. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more. We are committed to high-quality and diverse storytelling and creativity, but can only do this with your support. Check out minervasbooks.com gather for more, including how you can pick up my collage for this episode. With love and bookishness, see you in Part 2 of Booksellers and Storytellers soon. Adios. Cole's Book Arcade, Cole's Book
1: Arcade, it is in Melbourne town of all the bookstores in this land. It has the most renown. It was the first, first book arcade that in the world was found. It's still the finest book arcade in all the world around. A lovely rainbow sign appears above the book arcade, and tis the very grandest sign was ever yet displayed. A million, yes, a million books are stored within its walls, which can be seen looked at or but by anyone that
5: calls.
1: The book you wish, the book you want Is almost sure to be found somewhere In the book arcade if you will call and see